Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we encrypt your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Doug Fields talks about how the brain generates brainwaves. And from the archives, Catherine B. Hagg talks about using brainwaves to catch criminals. Now here's news of brainwaves used for marketing and rehabilitation. Microsoft Brainwaves. Microsoft have patented a system where they pay you to watch ads. The twist is that they want you to wear sensors all the time to measure your brainwaves, body heat, body fluid flow and organ activity and movement. Naturally, they don't want to pay you real money, so they'll pay you in their own currency that even Microsoft won't accept as payment. As well as your attention in watching ads, Microsoft also want to surveil how you use all of the internet, specifically mentioning social media, search engines, sending and receiving email, visiting websites, and using chatbots. In the patent, Microsoft suggests that you would choose to allow a company to observe your intimate bodily functions with functional magnetic resonance imaging scanners or sensors, electroencephalography sensors, near-infrared spectroscopy sensors, heart rate monitors, thermal sensors, optical sensors, radio frequency sensors, ultrasonic sensors, cameras, or any other sensor or scanner that can measure or sense body activity or scan the human body. In a story from the British dark future TV show Black Mirror, some people scraped a living from money earned by watching ads, measured by where they looked and if their eyes were open, that they could only spend on a very limited catalogue of goods and services. Microsoft wants people to think it intends for you to use your body to mine cryptocurrency, instead of them mining you for data that they can sell for real money in return for giving you just a token payment. The patent uses the language of cryptocurrency, terms like proof of work, while the flowchart shows that the cryptocurrency system is just a method of payment from outside the sensor machinery and nothing to do with the actual surveillance and generation of corporate profits from your private interactions on the internet. The patent does go into detail to say that it's about using sensor readings from the brain or body to validate work. It's cryptocurrency mining, which they at least have the honesty to put in inverted commas. Proof of work in real cryptocurrencies are mathematically validating that a hard-to-compute problem has been given a correct solution. It's ridiculous to suggest that body sensor data will magically match the cryptographic hash of a difficult-to-compute problem because the person being surveilled has unconsciously solved the difficult problem by watching an ad. This isn't mining at all. 
the sensor data will match the parameters that the system recognises as you having watched the ad with full attention, and that it will pay you pretend money, or nothing at all if the recognition fails. The Microsoft Funny Money isn't rare, and there's no reason for merchants to accept it in exchange for goods and services. So it's as worthless as any company's points or reward scheme. This is just a reward scheme dressed up as a cryptocurrency. This patent is about intimate intrusions to your privacy to harvest marketing data. The cryptocurrency is just tacked on as a distraction and a way to avoid paying you. The misleading title of the patent is Cryptocurrency System Using Body Activity Data. I see what you see. Researchers from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology and the Neurobotics Company have successfully recreated images of what someone is seeing as they see purely from reading their brainwaves. Nobody tell Microsoft. The researchers are interested in making this into a brain-computer interface for disabled people, particularly people who've suffered a stroke, for controlling exoskeleton arms with their thoughts. And the real-time window on the mind is just their means to that end. The paper has both photos and a video of the videos people were watching and the images the system recreated are eerily similar but often blurred or incomplete. Previously, researchers have achieved similar success using bulky, expensive magnetic resonance image scanners, first with cats and then with humans. Such MRI scanners are usually giant electromagnets weighing a ton that people are moved into on a kind of sliding bed, while being told to keep very still. Some new portable MRI scanners, weighing as little as a kilogram, are being developed at the Hunter Medical Research Institute for use in ambulances so that paramedics can detect when people have suffered a stroke. Other systems use electrodes surgically embedded in your brain to read electrical signals, and then the electrodes rot fairly quickly and stop working within months. Electroencephalogram EEG brainwave readers, in contrast, are light bundles of electrodes that sit on your skull, perhaps with help from some conductive paste, sometimes as part of a rubber skull cap or a plastic helmet. There are even consumer EEG headsets on the market. For the first phase of the experiment, the researchers trained an artificial neural network to interpret the brainwaves of people watching 20 minutes of a random selection of 10-second video clips from YouTube, covering abstract shapes, waterfalls, human faces, movie mechanisms, and first-person view FPV recordings of snowmobile, water scooter, motorcycle, and car races. They put black screen transitions of 2-3 to three seconds between the clips. Researchers found that brainwave patterns are distinct for each category of videos. In the second phase of the experiment, three random categories were selected from the original five. The researchers developed two neural networks, one for generating random category-specific images from a kind of noise, and another for generating a similar kind of noise from the brainwave signals. Then, they connected the two networks and trained them to work together to accurately display images similar to those the people were seeing. For the third phase, they tested the system showing people previously unseen videos from the same categories. As they watched, their brain waves were measured and fed to the neural networks. 
the system was able to correctly show similar images to those that people were watching accurately enough to see which category of video they were watching 90% of the time. Ultimately, they'd like to be able to have the same results for people imagining scenes for the neural network to recreate, so that you would have the illusion that the machine is showing what you visualised, which would give you feedback on how well you visualised and thus train you to better match what the machine can read. Ultimately, you would then control prosthetics by visualising scenes that produce reliable signals for the devices to reliably recognise and act on your intent to move that robot arm or walk the exoskeleton and so on. When you are mind-controlling machines, reliable results are very important. The paper was titled Natural Image Reconstruction from Brainwaves, a Novel Visual BCI System with Native Feedback and was published in the preprint archive, BioArchive, and has not yet been peer-reviewed. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. How are brainwaves generated? R. Douglas Fields is the author of The Electric Brain, a book about brainwaves and the ability to interrogate and manipulate the brain through electrical activity. I spoke to Doug by Skype and continued our conversation by asking him what is the brain doing to generate brainwaves? Well, here's the controversy. So we know that these brainwaves exist. And, you know, they're fascinating. They change with your consciousness during different phases of sleep, consciousness, uh, anesthesia. All of these things affect brainwaves. But we don't know if it's causation or correlation. And that's the problem. So half the neuroscientists think that brain waves are fundamental to how the brain works at its most sophisticated level. And here's the idea. Neurons fire an electrical impulse by detecting the difference in voltage across their membrane inside and outside the cell. And when it gets to a certain trigger voltage, the neuron fires a, an impulse. That's the basic mechanism of how it works. And people learn about that in school. Um, so if you, you know, if you change, uh, the voltage inside a neuron, um, depolarize it, it'll fire an impulse, hyperpolarize it. It will tend not to fire. And even when you try and make it fire, it won't fire because you're so far below this trigger point. What people are leave leave out in textbooks, school books is that you can change the voltage across the membrane in two ways, either changing the voltage inside the neuron, which is what is always talked about, or change the voltage outside the neuron. And that's what the brain waves do. So when the brain waves, um, brain waves are fluctuations in electrical uh, voltage outside the neuron. So at the crest of the wave, neurons are inhibited from firing. And at the troughs, they're stimulated to fire. So what this means is that the populations of neurons 
can become coupled together by the rhythmic oscillations and firing of brain waves in much the same way that different parts of an orchestra become coupled together. You know, the, the violins will play with the clarinets and then break off in a different rhythm for another part of uh, a piece of music. So that's what's really intriguing because this would allow for coupling cognitive information together in a coherent way. So for example, if you pull up a memory, a memory comes with a rich assortment of of sights and sounds and smells and emotion, time and place and sequence. All of those things are in different parts of the brain. The auditory cortex is different from the visual cortex. Yet to have this coherent memory, all of this stuff comes together. How does all this information get coupled? Many scientists are believing that brain waves, by coupling together in synchrony populations of neurons, is what is orchestrating the flow of information and the filtering of information in the brain. Now, I can't, I'm, I, I can't say... Um, you know, what my opinion is, I, I just want to uh, provide the latest information to the reader so the reader can form their own opinion. And the reason for that is that that's science. It's exciting. That's science in action. And um, I want to be able to portray that sense of discovery and how scientists go about trying to trying to answer a question and the difference between a belief and a proof, you know, and a correlation and causation. They're, they're, scientists have to keep those very separate. Fascinating stuff. And as you say, it is important that people understand how the science is done and that it's interesting how the science is done. Well, yeah. And, you know, when you're really doing new cutting edge science, you're never comfortable. I mean, the answers are not in the back of the book. And we just know how easy it is to be fooled or misled or misinterpret information or leave out an important piece of information. That's the history of science. I mean, we're talking here about the electric brain. You know, 300 years ago, there was no electricity in the man-made world. So our current understanding of the brain came about because of this discovery of this new force of nature. You know, there's probably many more secrets in nature that, we, that have a bearing on how the brain works that we don't even have our grasp or any idea of yet. That's, what we, that's why we always have this queasy feeling as scientists we make a conclusion but then we try and knock it down every way and if we can't defeat it then we accept it but you're never sure that you have it right you can never be sure so and the other thing that i try to get across is how collaborative it is because i've gone around the world into these labs and i talk to the scientists and you know if you're doing something cutting edge of science there may be only five people in the world who understand what you're doing and so science is one of the most collaborative human activities that, that I can think of. And so that, that's also something I, I try to uh, portray in the book by just going to all of these labs, Spain and Italy and, and around the United States, and letting these scientists explain their perspective and their doubts and together try to come up with an answer that we will all accept. But right now, there is no consensus. Amazing stuff. So the electric brain, is it out now? Yep. It's, uh, it was published, just recently published, but, you know, with the pandemic, it's <laughs> bookstores <laughs> have closed and whatnot, so the timing is difficult. But you can get it online and, and audiobooks and print 
whatever. And yeah. do you have a website where people can look up your work? Sure. rdouglasfields.com. Terrific. Now, I'll well, say that that's, 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 that's for my uh, popular work. I'm also a, a working scientist, but I have to keep my employer separate from, from my communicating. My love of communicating science to the public is separate. So that's what that work, uh, website's about, is my writing for the general public about neuroscience. Do you have a link from there to your scientific work as well? I do list some list the papers. Yeah. Oh, good. Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about this work. Douglas Fields, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was the third and final part of my interview with Doug Fields about brain waves and his book, The Electric Brain. He's also written The Other Brain about non-neuronal cells in the brain that communicate without electricity and why we snap about the neural circuitry of sudden aggression. Brainwave fingerprinting. From the 2006 Diffusion Archives, Catherine Behag explains how brainwaves could be used to catch criminals. Police come to your door, grab you, take you to the cop shop and stick electrodes on your head. You are not asked anything at all, but instead lay there silently watching pictures of a crime flash before your eyes. Ten minutes later, the police tell you that you are found guilty of a murder of a young woman called Sally. No further questions are asked, as your brain has told them everything. Brain fingerprinting is a technique developed by Dr Lawrence Farwell, a Harvard graduate, neuroscientist and now chairman of and chief scientist of brain fingerprinting laboratories. Here, words, pictures or sounds relevant to a crime are presented with irrelevant words and pictures to a suspect. When stimuli relevant to the crime is presented, the suspect lets off an involuntary, specific and measurable brain response. This brainwave response is measured by a patented headband equipped with EEG sensors. Dr Farwell told BBC News that brain fingerprinting doesn't have anything to do with emotions, whether a person is sweating or not. It simply detects, scientifically, if that information is stored in your brain. Farwell brain fingerprinting has proven 100% accurate in over 100 tests, including tests on FBI agents, tests for a US intelligence agency, for the US Navy, and tests on real-life situations, including actual crimes. Those in favour of brain fingerprinting hope to use it in the legal system. If brain fingerprinting proves as foolproof as early research suggests, this would be a legal revolution. Its effects have already been felt in the United States criminal justice system. On April 25, 2000, Dr Farwell used brain fingerprinting to exonerate an innocent man who has spent 23 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit. Terry Harrington was convicted of the 1977 murder of a night watchman in Iowa. Brain fingerprinting results showed Harrington's brain did not contain details of the crime that would be known to the perpetrator, but he did have memories stored in his brain that matched several alibi witnesses who testified Harrington was elsewhere at the time of the crime. Despite this success, brain fingerprinting has yet to be used in the Australian criminal justice system. As you might know, science and the law have had a difficult relationship in Australia. When science enters the legal realm, it has often shown the flaws in our seemingly reliable legal processes. No matter how certain the scientific technique, it is in the hands of the scientist and lawyer to ensure that it is used properly. 
These techniques are used most often with the identification of suspects. This is a critical part of the legal system. Proper identification separates the innocent from the guilty. Misidentification can condemn a poor bystander, like you or me, to imprisonment and allow a criminal to get off scot-free. The case of the Mickelberg brothers in Western Australia is a prime example. Based on fingerprint evidence, the brothers were convicted of trying to defraud the Perth Mint in 1983. The brothers were finally freed after proving that it was possible to fake fingerprint evidence. The Australian legal system has tried to control the use of scientific evidence in court. Justice Keith Mason has said that judges must ensure that the jury understands its role and understands exactly what the scientific evidence does and does not tend to prove. These rules reflect the legal system's general suspicion of science. But when science is used well, justice can be achieved. In a high-profile investigation of a sexual assault in 2000, police decided to take DNA samples of all men in the New South Wales town of Weewar. The mass screening was critical in police finding and convicting the man responsible. This was a significant success for science in the legal system and helped to ease fears about the use of DNA evidence. DNA, fingerprints and other forms of forensic evidence are used a lot to help solve crimes in Australia. But evidence of this type is only applicable in an estimated 1% of crimes. The use of brain fingerprinting, however, is estimated to be applicable in over 50% of cases, as the brain is always there, planning, executing and recording the suspect's actions. And I believe lawyers must learn to embrace this technology because it can help to achieve swift and fair justice. And now for a 2006 Diffusion Team discussion of the subject hosted by Lachlan Watmore with Catherine Behag, Mark West and me. I don't know about you, but I'm terrified. We've got the open mic discussion right now. We've got uh, Ian Wolfe, Mark West and Catherine herself talking about it. And Cathy, I believe you've actually got a case for us here where this has been used. Yeah, well, there's actually been quite a few cases, um, over 100, where it's been shown to be extremely accurate. And one of them was a case in 1999 where Dr. Firewall conducted a brain fingerprinting test on a guy called Grider. And because this showed that he had a record stored in his brain which mm. matched the details of the crime, mm. he then pled guilty to the rape and murder of Julie Helton in exchange for a life sentence without parole and he's currently serving that sentence and okay. and from now on he's confessed to other previously unsolved murders of three other young women. So oh, okay. it seems to be very yeah. good technique. Okay. Well, well when, it, when it works, it works. What do you mm. think, guys? Well, is there any way to fake it? You can fake a lie detector test. Can you fake a brain scan? I bet you can. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's the old cliche, you know, I've, I've blotted it out. It was too horrible a memory. Perhaps if you used, you know, certain meditation techniques or, or various cognitive techniques, you could actually blot out the memory of the crime that you've committed and therefore could not be detected by what, brain What about the opposite where people say under hypnosis they've had images and memories planted in their brains? Do you that's, think- that's the other side of it, yeah. Yeah, implanted false memories are extremely dangerous territory. However... I'm not sure if Dr. Farwell and his other researchers have looked into that. Yeah, do you, you don't know whether or not there's some sort of foolproof way to, mm. to prove that it is a genuine mm. memory rather than planted yeah. or whatever. Well, especially since he did patent brain fingerprinting, so we can't replicate it apart it's, from in his labs. It sounds like they're actually using this to persuade people to confess, which mm. means that if they got a false positive and you aren't guilty, 
you won't confess, so yeah. you won't be. Con- the confession seems to be what's convicted him more than the brain fingerprint. Oh right, okay, yeah. Well, that's yeah, right. Just underline the whole thing with the actual confession itself, you know, yes. like the old days, mm. you know. But it's extremely different to the other lie detectors out there. They're really they can't be used that much, and we know that you can implant fingerprints and everything else. There you have, and congratulations to Catherine. That was Catherine B. Hag talking about catching criminals with brainwaves. Joined in discussion by Lachlan Watmore, Mark West and yours truly from 2006. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.